Welcome to my new podcast, Worth Their Weight in Gold. It was going to be called What Makes You Tick, but one of my heroes, seven-time world surfing champion Lane Beachley, and also radio host Neil Mitchell, both have a podcast with the same name. So, Worth Their Weight in Gold it is, and I love the name, I actually say it quite often about a lot of people that I bump into. As you may know, I've already got two podcasts, The Perfect 10, a sports podcast that I started back in 2018, and Our House, a property podcast that we began in 2020. And with the World Cup in Qatar and the Women's World Cup here next year, I'm also hoping to launch a football podcast in the next few weeks. But this is the podcast I've always wanted to do. I used to love the Andrew Denton show on the ABC, and every episode, he'd go in the audience and he'd speak to these amazing people with incredible stories of heroics. And I used to find those stories more fascinating than the Hollywood superstars that he had on the show. I love great storytelling and that's the aim of this podcast. So who is worth their weight in gold? You'll hear about an athlete who was on target for the Olympic Games and then in a freak accident, jumped in front of a car to save his daughter's life. Then there's one of my best mates who's been to six Olympic Games and has filmed some of the greatest moments in sporting history. Terry was training for an Ironman triathlon when he was hit by a car and he was almost killed. He'll share that story as well as the challenges of raising a severely autistic son. You'll hear from a guy who ran 10 marathons in 10 days, not just once, but two years in a row. Another person I love is a surf life-saving national gold medalist who launched a nippers program for kids with special needs. She's also a firefighter and has a degree in occupational health, so can't wait to tell that story in a couple of weeks' time. Right now, though, let's get to our first guest. I used to play AFL footy with a husband, and our kids were all around the same age, and we've been friends for almost a quarter of a century. She was planning to be an ICU nurse in emergency in Melbourne, but in a classic love story, she relocated to Sydney to be with her future husband, Russell. And that's where her career goes in a completely new direction. In 1987, she lands a job as a midwife in Blacktown, and since then has been involved in thousands of births. So if having a family is the greatest moment of your life and your number one priority, Tracy is there to share the absolute jubilation in that moment. Midwifery actually fascinates me. It's a professional practice that dates back to 40,000 BC. And I can't wait to talk about that with Tracy a little later in the episode. We start, though, discussing her parents and what wonderful role models they were for her entire family. And by the way, she also goes by two names, Tracy Worrell in the workplace, and after hours, she's known as Tracy Stimson. So, Tracy, welcome to my new podcast. I'm giving you a standing ovation in the man cave, also known as Allen Podcast Headquarters. And if the show was going to be called What Makes You Tick, What's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Uh, my family and uh, my sense of community is probably what makes me tick. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. So you grow up in a small town in country Victoria. Tell us what's that like and how does it shape the person you become? Well, I grew up as the eldest of four girls in a little country town called Lismore in Western Victoria, which is sort of southwest of Ballarat, a town of around 600, depending on who you speak to. And I was the daughter of... A couple who have lived in that district their entire lives. Uh, my mum was worked in the district, grew up in the district, and supported my dad in his local business. And dad was a local everything. Mister Fixit is what he was. He um, 
hatched, matched and dispatched is how I used to describe himself. So he was the local ambulance volunteer. He um, worked in his business as well and volunteered across the community. So I came from a family with parents who did everything they could to support their children and grew up in a district that just nurtured community, looked after people and, yeah, gave us a whole sense of what it meant to be valued at the place that you live where everyone knew each other and people looked out for each other, I guess. So that's my my grassroots, really. Yeah, so mum and dad, I guess they're both on a pedestal for you, but dad's a real hero. Uh, yeah, both in their own ways. Um, mum's very quiet, I suppose, which is a quiet achiever in the background with that relationship and a lot of what she did probably went unnoticed by many except for those that really knew her. I spent a lot of time with Dad. He was a man who worked seven days a week to support his family and came from very little as well, so had a real work ethic. And he had a couple of big accidents like you do when you work for yourself in a big engineering organisation. And I went and worked with him after I finished my nursing and spent quite a lot of time with him. So as young kids, we were always rocking around the back of the ute or working with Dad in the (laughs) workshop so some of those practical life skills that we got, you know, were those times that were really valuable sort of spent with him and he was a really practical sort of a man. He had a real interest in health and helping people. As an ambulance driver, and I probably, you know, took part of that into my nursing and midwifery career as I, yeah, was older. Yeah. So what was the slogan? Hatches, matches and dispatches. Yeah. So he used to um, care for some of the mums in the district in the ambulance on their way to um, hospital when they had complications with their birth because our local hospital had to have transfer out sometimes. So that's the hatching. The matching was a relationship, matching couples together, and the dispatching was he was the local sexton. So he buried, um, made all the graves um, and buried a lot of the local district people. So was well known across the district, yeah. Yeah, he's wearing a lot of hats in that country Victoria town. Tell, tell us more about the hometown. Oh, it's the Western District, so, you know, big expanses of wide open space, a real sense of community. I grew up in that little country town, went to school at a place called Darren Allen, which was only 7Ks up the road. So, huge rivalry when it came to the sporting field as well for all of us that played sport down there. So, we went to school together during the week and then we were huge opponents against each other on a weekend. And, yeah, it was it was just a lifestyle for us. I can I can appreciate that now and value that now as an older person looking back on that. It was very simple, a lot of freedom. We just rode bikes and rode horses and uh, were part of any event that was going on in the community. And yeah, and that was sort of how we grew up. Even though I only lived there until I was 18, it's probably set the foundation for who I am and probably the way I've you know, parented my own children as I've got older as well and some of the decisions I've made, you know, with careers and stuff. Yeah, great answer. So apart from just being a volunteer, as as you grow, you actually, you want to make a difference. So you actually, you're on the board of numerous organisations. Was that something that you saw people do back home? Uh, yeah, well, I, it was interesting actually when we, mum and dad, sold their um, family home and then passed away, we sort of had that big task of cleaning the whole organisation up down there. I think mum was on nearly every volunteer committee in the district as either the secretary or the treasurer. So that was the swimming pool, it was the CWA, dad was on the board of the water trust and the hospital. So having come from that background, I guess it was just, um, I don't know, it was an automatic thing to do. Even as children, we were part of fundraising for Good Friday appeals and anything that went on in around um, school or out in the community. So for me, that's just normal. I probably don't quite understand people who don't do that sort of thing because that's just where I've come from and what I've done. 
Yeah, so it's all about giving back, giving back to the people that have, you know, given to me along the way. What about their education? Like, did they finish high school, your mum and dad, or is all of this from their life skills? Uh, dad was illiterate, so he'd be the first to say he couldn't read or write. Uh, he went to school for a bit and uh, didn't particularly do too well at school, I don't think. I think he might have um, got into a fair bit of strife and um, didn't do so well at boarding school in Geelong. So he he then, you know, went off and got a trade and, um, you know, was one of those people who might not be able to read or write but could, you know, make or design anything. And mum, extremely good with numbers and meticulous with bookkeeping and maths and that type of thing. So she supported dad's business and, you know, worked in around the district as well over the time. If the podcast is called What Makes You Tick, sport defines your family. So were mum and dad sporty? Yep, yep. Dad in particular. Mum was as well. Mum was a um, mum played a lot of netball and uh, was part of the marching, marching girls, the famous Lismore marching girls. Didn't play so much sport after she had her children, which is probably not, um, you know, not, it's probably quite common in those years. Uh, dad was quite a phenomenal runner. An extremely good footballer, according to the people that have seen. I saw him play probably when I was younger, but and really good um, shooter. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I love it. Uh, of course, uh, you know we see that every four years in the Olympics. Yeah, you know, shooters like Michael Diamond, Russell Mark. So, can I find out on the record what's your favourite netball, AFL, or water polo? Yeah, no, I don't really have a favourite. Uh, probably one of my favourite sports growing up was rowing because we rowed as kids and. Had I lived somewhere different, perhaps had different opportunities in my adolescent years, rowing probably would have been a sport that I really continued. I tried it again when I was in Melbourne working down there, but by the time I was down there I was shift working and nursing and it was all a bit different. But, um, yeah, we rode in these <laughs> we rode in these boats on this lake called Deep Lake out the back of Darren Ellum that was um, – we had some boats that came from Melbourne from a shed down there that one of our dads had been part of, Mercantile, down there. We set up this little club down at Darren Allen on this little lake and we rode and we had the best time and rode in big vessels that were heavy compared to everybody else that had all the gear. Yeah. Hey, so at the start of the podcast, I said you're Tracy Stimson slash Worrell. Now, I'm not entirely sure why, but I kind of really admire it. Is it because there were four daughters and you wanted to keep the family name alive? I think it's probably not something I'd thought of until I went home when we were getting married because I was living up here at the time and went back to Lismore to get married, went to the bank to sort some bits and pieces out. And the lady behind the counter knew me and said, oh, you're here to get married. Oh, here's the form you'll need to change your name. And I was so affronted that she would even think that I would change my name, what was wrong with the name that I had. And I walked out and I think I vowed and declared that I was never going to change my name because other people assumed I would. So... Uh, that probably d- defines my character a little bit as well. And I don't know. I suppose Tracy Worrell defined who I was. It's who I grew up with. I couldn't see any sense to change my name. So most people know me as Tracy Worrell. I'm Tracy Worrell at work. Since the children have arrived, I suppose people think I'm Stimson. Sometimes it's handy to have a couple of aliases. You're way ahead of your time, aren't you? Because we see it more and more. <laughs> Hell hath no fury like Tracy Scorn. I know. Perhaps it was the girls thing as well. Dad didn't have any other siblings that were boys. I'm not sure, but that Worrell name sort of stopped with all of us because it was four girls, so I don't know. Yeah, well, as you know, my wife, uh, there's three daughters, and so the house and name doesn't live on on that side of the family. So, yeah, I think it's a really great thing that you did. Okay, so your dad, like, uh, kind of running an ambulance service, is that one of the reasons why you decide to be a nurse? Tell us the thought process behind that. I'm not too sure where that's come from. I think Dad was a volunteer ambo down there, which meant that he worked in the workshop and then he'd get a phone call 
that there'd been something happen and he would quickly come out of the greasy overalls, wash his hands, fly in at home, grab a pair of white overalls, put them on, race out the door and go to whatever was on. And at that stage they train volunteers for that basic first aid um, stuff and obviously it was all confidential. But a lot of the time Dad was going to incidents of people that he knew, accidents of people that he knew, deaths of people that he knew. So I'm not, I don't know whether it came from that. He was a football trainer as well. So we had a local hospital that I was quite interested in. I used to go down and just visit the people at the hospital. I was part of, you know, the Brownies and the Guides organisation in our local district and we did lots of caring and support of our community. So some of that was visiting the hospital. And I think I just decided I was going to go nursing. Had a couple of other family friends that were pretty keen for me to go nursing and that's just the career path I took although I did get into PE teaching so I told my father I was going to go I was going to defer that for a year and I might go PE teaching but I think that was just to stir the pot I was never going to be a PE teacher. Yeah uh, I I was really fortunate to meet you mum and dad but uh, it's remarkable to hear their stories and it's great that they can live on Mm. in this podcast. Mm. I think they live on through all their grandchildren as well you know they've um between you know my mum and dad and the other set of grandparents we've been very fortunate to have great role models and role models that value the pretty simple things in life and just value people looking out for people and I know dad always used to say there's always someone worse off than you so he used to use a few expletives as well when he used to say that but um you know while they're giving you a hard time they're leaving some other poor bastard alone was what he used to say to us all the time and when we thought things were tough at school or out and about you know there was always some positive he would find in that and considering they've survived bushfires and drought and all sorts of really tough times. They seem to be both unscathed by that in their own way. They just still were always glass half full. And I've had people over the years, I suppose, tell me that I'm very like that. Like I've got that glass half full. There's always something to look forward to. There's a certain direction that I was hoping the podcast would go in, which we might get to in a moment. But how have you coped losing those two pillars of your life? Oh, I've got some pretty good people around me. You know, you know that your family, aren't, your parents aren't going to live forever. And um, I just feel extremely grateful that my children are old enough to have been able to have such a connection with their grandparents, even though they lived a thousand kilometres away. And, you know, often families find it difficult to maintain relationships. Their relationships were phenomenal with their grandparents, both sets of grandparents. And, um, that's been a huge part of who the kids are with just uh, holidays and getting back to driving tractors and yahooing in utes and climbing haystacks and being in the workshop covered in grease and mud and just simple things. Yeah, so life's, life's about looking forward, Steve. It's not about looking back. Um, and it's about making the best of you know, whatever's coming and being extremely grateful and humble with you know, where you are and that's exactly how I feel. So if we're talking about what makes you tick, now one thing that I find fascinating, and I've got a lot of questions on this, is you transitioning from being a nurse to being a midwife. Now, if you jump on the web, you'll see that it maybe dates back 40,000 years BC. I mean, so it's something that's been around like since the start of time. Tell me more about the history. I think there was a period where midwives were classified as witches through the 15th and 16th century in the U.S., But in terms of Indigenous culture, there's always been women that have been a part of midwifery. Tell me more. Yeah, I guess birthing is is real women's business is how most cultures 
that don't complicate birth, see birth and midwifery. You know, birth's really, for many people, quite uncomplicated. I know we complicated at the moment. It's become quite medicalised. But the role of a midwife's always been there. It's always been the person that's there with the woman that's birthing, often, you know, supporting uh, with that that skill and expertise that goes alongside that, but also the confidence in the, the women and the family to just birth their babies and the value of caring for women and and their families and stepping them off as, in the most positive way as possible into their parenting journey is really the whole essence of midwifery and where that comes from. You know, midwifery as a career path is probably at a crossroad at the moment as well about maintaining the importance and the value with birth when it becomes so medicalised at times as well. So there'll always be a role for the midwives. There's all different places that people birth. There's, you know, people have been birthing on on country and in their own cultures, all different ways for centuries, and the role of midwife's still there. So very valuable for the women that um, yeah, that have had midwives care for them. What made you go into it in the first place? I have to confess it was <laughs> accidental. Hey, you just rolled your eyes at me. I've never seen you do <laughs> that knew, ever. I knew you were going to ask me this question, like it was some big burning career path right from the start, which is not the truth. No, I look as a country... Country kid, I went nursing in Ballarat, did that, and was always going to go to Melbourne, whatever that meant. Um, I didn't really know. And then um, Dad had a big accident off the tractor at home and couldn't work for about six months and there wasn't really anyone to run the business. His colleague that used to work with him had passed away. So I made the decision to head back home, which was only 45 minutes away, it's not far away, but went home and just worked in the workshop tried to run that business as best I could with the farmers that weren't particularly happy about a female that was um, the face of the workshop at times. So I did six months home with mum and dad and, uh, and that, was a bit, that was a bit different after being out of home for a few years. I, I mean, it was just at the time where I'd finished and had my qualification. So I worked there and then I worked at the local hospital down there um, part-time for a bit, which was a bit of an eye-opener because I thought I you know, knew everything as a brand-new graduate nurse and um, I knew nothing. So... I certainly learned a lot down there on my own at times on shifts with a you know an enrolled nurse at the age of 21 with you know managing situations and power going out and having to start generators and all that sort of stuff. So I then um, headed to Melbourne because I thought that would be you know that would really cement my career as a nurse and I'd head down there. So I did and I hated it to start with and I was extremely homesick and but met some of the most amazing people and made the most amazing friends at the time. I had probably a couple of years in Melbourne and. Oh, it was fun. We, you know, it was, I was certainly a country kid in the city. So a couple of the one of the charge nurses called me Hayseed at one stage because I was forever resuscitating people every time he came into work, and I had I just had a different I don't know a different swagger about me. I don't know what it was. Still ran into people that I knew down there. I decided I was going to do the ICU course. I worked in ED at the time, and started studying to do intensive care to get an additional qualification. And I think I saw nursing as my career path at that stage. I also had a boyfriend who was living in Sydney at the time and he'd been up up here for a while and we'd been doing that sort of six months of, you know, him living up there, me living down in Melbourne and uh, we just I had one big trauma in the trauma centre one night and with a really good friend of mine and um, looked after a couple that um, someone passed away and amongst all that and I can remember just turning to her and saying, life's too short, what am I doing, this is ridiculous, I'm out of here, I'm going to Sydney. And I can remember telling my father I was off to Sydney and uh, he was he was like, you can't do that, Wizbang. You can't you can't go to Sydney. Like, you're going to do that ICU course and you'll have a double certificate and you'll be able to get a job anywhere. I said, yeah, yeah, no, it's all good, Dad, all good. <laughs> I'll get a job first and then I'll go. Well, I didn't have a job, so I had to find one. And um, 
I just found this midwifery advertised and thought, you know what, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go for that. So poor Nita Perkle, who was in charge of midwifery out at Blacktown at the time, got bombarded with phone calls at the time because there was no email. Phone calls and phone calls and phone calls and then I turned up on the doorstep and I saw her and I think in the end she just accepted me into the last um, intake of midwives at Blackdown in 1987 uh, just because she was sick of hearing from me. So that's how I ended up in midwifery. It was my my way to get up here, I think, and I was able to tell mum and dad I had a job to go to so I wasn't just leaving nursing without um, you know somewhere to go. So I came to Sydney. Yeah, there's a fair bit to unpack there. One of them is that... Your nickname is Whizbang. Yep. I used to whiz around and bang into things, so probably not too different to now. So you moved to Sydney for love, yes. the great Russell John Stimson. Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, we'd been together for, I oh know, since we were 19. So, you know, Stim had been up here for over six months or so by the time I came up, and he'd um, been trying to forge his own pathway as a, you know, as a young accountant. Victoria was in the middle of a recession, couldn't get a job, so he had a family friend that offered him work up here, so he came. So, yeah. I thought I was going to do int- intensive care and finish that, but anyway, I did be briefly instead. Yeah, you touched on something earlier too that you know, I don't want to gloss over, and it's the fact that you saw trauma at such a young age and how you deal with that. Because now I guess there's processes in place that can help you afterwards, but what about back then? We probably did a lot of our own debriefing at inappropriate locations after work. Um, you know, inappropriate. Some, sometimes for many hours, you know. When I worked in Melbourne in the ED, we used to have a fairly good collection of us that used to get together after big events that were, you know, the Ambos, sometimes sometimes the police as well, and the, you know, the nursing staff at the hospital. We probably did our own debriefing without even realising what we are doing at the time. But I don't know. I've, I've, you know, seen lots of things. I've been involved in lots of many, many situations over the years, both out of work and at work. And sometimes it's about just being able to manage that situation and then, um, you know, and move forward. And I don't know why I can manage some of that sometimes and then keep stepping forward. There's obviously certain things that, you know, are still distressing and you always care for your families. But the important thing with a lot of that is you can make a huge difference to families uh, in really difficult times. And that's probably... One of my strengths and one of my passions, regardless of which area I've worked in, whether it's been intensive care, you know, ED or midwifery. So with midwifery, you're you're there for arguably, probably, a woman's greatest moment, a family's greatest moment of their life. Just euphoria. It's a bit of a privilege, really. And there's so many different areas of midwifery to work in. I've worked in lots of different areas, you know, over the years. But to be... Part of any family's, you know, pregnancy and parenting journey and that that stepping off into parenthood is an absolute privilege. So I don't ever take for granted the role that I play with families and the difference that I can make. And that's probably a standard I always try and maintain regardless of who I care for. I've never been someone that um, treats anybody any differently. You know, what you see is what you get and how you care for people is exactly the same regardless of who they are. Yeah. And I just know that over the years there's been situations that, um, you know, we've been able to make a difference for families even if the outcomes haven't been as positive as what we'd like them to be. What is the role and when does it begin? Uh, it probably depends on where you work. You know, there I've worked in all areas. Some of them it's been early pregnancy in a, you know, in a miscarriage service. Other times it's been antenatal, other times it's been birthing, sometimes it's been postnatal in all different settings. So, you know, everywhere you go... You can make an impact with family. Sometimes it's after people have had a loss of a baby. 
and they're coming back for a future pregnancy. So I don't know that there's a start and an end. It's just one continuum. I often see my families out, well, not my families, but I often see the families out in the community and out and about as well. So it's pretty special to be, you know, part of such a significant um, time in people's lives. How many children <laughs> no do you idea. think you've delivered over the years? I haven't delivered any. I've supported the the mothers who birthed their own babies. And I don't know, I've cared for thousands of women over the years. You know, at the moment I'm not in a role where I'm caring for women who are birthing, but I you know, am caring for them beforehand. So, you know, thousands of women have come across my path over the years at various spots that I've worked. Okay. I've birthed my own babies. They're the only ones I've birthed. That's it. What are the various types of birth that you can have? So, you know, it could be anywhere. It could be at home, the kitchen. It could be in the car. It could be on the side of the road for some of our families. It could be, you know, in the bath, water births, in the shower. It could be anywhere. So... Yeah, I think most mums have got their own story and those stories are different with each of their births. So tell us about a water birth. Well, I've had my own water birth. So I guess a lot of the women that have water births will talk about it being more comfortable, more secure. They're tucked in the, the bubble of the space that's their own. And yeah, it's just for them, for most mums that are in the in the pool or in a bath are quite comfortable in there to birth in there. Not everybody is, just about what feels right for them at the time. Your best friend is a midwife. She and is. if I looked at you two side by side, you're almost tarred with the same brush. What are your thoughts? Yeah. How do you respond to that? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I don't know. You go through life and um, there are times that you make connections with people and you don't ever at the time wonder where they're going to go or what that's about. But um, that very first day of midwifery um, that I had out at Blacktown, you know, I sat at a table next to somebody who said, hi, my name's Rachel. I said, hi, my name's Tracy. And that was, I don't know, nearly 30 years ago now. And that relationship has, yeah, I don't know what that's been. It's just been amazing, really. Like, we've had eight babies between the two of us. And um, we've birthed our babies with each other and our partners at various spots at home. You know, lived lived all different experiences, you know. The birth of babies, the loss of parents, all the highs and lows of, of life as we go. Yeah, so pretty special, really. Is being a midwife nerve-wracking? I don't think so. And tell me why. Is it because you've got a, a big team around you at the time and lots of expertise? No, sometimes you have no team around you and you there's just one or two of you and an amazing woman that's birthing their baby. So I don't think it's nerve-wracking. I've probably had some experiences that have been, sure, um, full of adrenaline and very challenging. I suppose that's what you train for. You know, we had a phenomenal education out at Blacktown and worked with some of the most amazing midwives and um, they, you know, I, I owe a lot to them really because they were well ahead of their time really and were just phenomenal educators. So we had just the best education and the best base out there around understanding the basics of midwifery and being able to identify things when things aren't okay. So, yeah, you, most of the time you, you manage what's in front of you. You're far too humble, but you must be really proud of choosing that career path. Uh, yeah, it was certainly a good decision for me. I don't know how I would have managed ED, ICU as a mother because it's very different when you have your own children and you work sometimes in some of those fields when you're caring for families with young children, although having said that, I'm caring for families with babies every day. Yeah, but I, I suppose I landed in midwifery accidentally and have made it a career pathway. So if I didn't like it, I wouldn't have stayed. So there was obviously something in amongst it that's kept me kept me in it. 
Is part of being a midwife dealing with postnatal depression? And can you talk more about that? Is it on the rise? Uh, I probably don't see as much postnatal depression in those early days in my role. I care for a lot of women who come back to have future pregnancies who may have had postnatal depression or may have mental health conditions. But I have just recently had a role where I've cared for a lot of the really complex families that you know across the central coast and that's hugely rewarding work so you can make such a difference to families who themselves have got their own challenges uh, women who have got their own trauma histories and to give them the right care with the right compassion and trust is is really important so you know it's been a really valuable role and one that um, you know I know you can make a difference with so as is postnatal depression on the rise? Well, I think it's probably always been there. We've probably detected a bit more now. Our antenatal mental health challenges are probably on the rise. We've got a whole lot of families out there now that are parenting in isolation, particularly with the COVID um, pandemic. So I think there's more challenges for new parents as well. Yeah. You said earlier about some of the midwives being ahead of their time. You started a business called Mother to Mother. Mm. Do you feel like you're ahead of your time there? But was that all about connection? Yeah, for Rachel and I, I suppose we... We could see that there was a real void for women in and around the support for mothers and particularly in and around that breastfeeding support as well. And her and I are both lactation consultants as well. So that's why we probably had that interest at the time and, you know, we're trying to set that up and really with eight children amongst us, it probably wasn't the right time. But it was really around mothers needing just some really practical support. It's not um, it's not rocket science, a lot of this. It's, um, it's just basic caring compassion and giving people the right information, the right advice and giving the women and their support network the confidence to just grow as parents and do it do it in their own time, their own pace and with the right support around them rather than um, feeling like they're, you know, being set up to not have a successful time. With your decades of experience, what advice would you have for someone who wants to go down that pathway? Oh, it's a great career path and the, the training certainly difficult. It's one of the most difficult um, trainings I did at the time. But Yeah, tell me why. Uh, it was just different to anything I'd done. It's so different to nursing. It's nothing like nursing. It's certainly very, very different. You often almost have to take off your nursing hat to put your midwifery hat on because, you know, nursing you're dealing with, you know, illness and accident injury and disease process and in midwifery you're dealing looking after healthy, well women. So um, we don't need to make life complicated when women are normal and healthy and well. So... My biggest advice to, to young midwives coming through is just to just learn, learn, sit back, take it all in, learn from the women because it's the women that are going to teach you everything that you know. It's not the um, it's not the other people around you. It's the women that have taught the women have taught me so much over the decades, and they're the people that um, you know I'm most grateful for. Okay, let's uh, let's maybe finish with sport because uh, <laughs> there's a lot that makes you tick, and uh, you've done an amazing job in administration in the sport of water polo. Your four children, they're all representative players. So Zoe, Rosie, who happens to be my son's best friend, Ellie Stimson, and now Luke Stimson, who's on the Australian junior squad and maybe has an Olympic dream. What are you most proud of in that sport, and particularly at the grassroots level where you've been heavily involved? I guess um, probably what I'm most proud of is the friendships and connections that have come from sport, hence me sitting here today, I guess, our connection through AFL. Yeah, I mean, sport's so much more than what happens on the field or in the pool. It's about the people that you meet, the relationships that you develop. And for us as a family, those connections and relationships are Australia-wide and, you know, and for some of the kids overseas now as well. And um, 
even for Stim and I, when we first moved here, it was through our sport that we have developed our network and our friendships. Um, we started with playing a bit of tennis at the old Tugra, you know, tennis stadium and Stim played AFL and I played netball and we already had some friendships established through sport prior to the kids developing their sport stuff. So, yeah, that's probably what I'm most proud of in relation to our sporting situation is just uh, where sport's taken us, you know, some of the nooks and crannies across the country that we've explored, uh, some of those fun trips that we have with, you know, a whole range of different people, the different spots we've been. And when it comes to the administration of grassroots sport, probably what I can be most proud of at the moment, I think, is just watching some of the kids that have come into the sport, just um, just enjoying it and and still playing it. For me, sport's about participation. It's about friendships. It's about getting out there and having a good time. You know, it's about all that healthy, active lifestyle and people learning to appreciate others and and share and all the things that go with team sports in particular. For me, it's actually not about the level that you achieve or representation levels or, you know, who's reached where. It's about um, come along, try something and you might actually, you know, find a lifelong friend or who knows where your sport's going to take you. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good answer. Uh, it must be tough at times in the sport because water polo is the oldest Olympic team sport and yet, and it's huge in Europe. And yet here it's like a fringe sport. That must be frustrating at times. We live a long way from Europe, so we there's no way we have the infrastructure that they have in Europe when it comes to the sport of water polo. And I mean, I haven't really been involved in the sport that long myself. I only started as a an old lady. And yes, the kids have been involved in the sport, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's pretty tough for water polo. It's pretty tough for the athletes if they want to compete, you know, on that international stage because it's just. Um, you know, it's a main sport in a lot of the European countries and their funding is just so different compared to what we have here. Yeah. You hear a lot of interviews where someone will say, if you could invite three people to dinner. Oh, Steve. So uh, for you, who would you invite on a skiing trip at Wiseman's Ferry? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh anyone that wants to come. I don't know. <laughs> I need a boat driver. I don't, I don't really have any favourites. Isn't that terrible? I don't have any favourites anywhere in my life. Well, I've got family favourites, but one big happy family for me. Yeah, I thought that might be the answer. Trace, one thing I've always loved about you, and it's almost like you're, you're kind of like a fairy godmother, like you're this woman, and I really love this. You see this in Indigenous communities where it takes a tribe to raise a child. Is that correct? And I see you do that locally all the time. There's always kids at your place. People are always welcome to our place. It's been the same when the kids were younger and as they've got older and their friendships have developed. It probably goes with my, my sense of community, I suppose. And I think um, the longer I've lived in our community, the more connections that I've made. Anyone's welcome to our place. <laughs> and uh, what would you say about my wife on this podcast, on the record? On the record. Well, your wife's the reason I'm involved in water polo. So Sharon and I obviously have a friendship from... You know, you and Stim playing footy together and our kids yahooing down at the um, Adelaide Street Oval. And the reason I played water polo was because of a flyaway conversation with her one day when I said, oh, you know, I've always wanted to play water polo. And she goes, well, yeah, I used to play. Why don't we play? I was like, oh. And Sharon's fairly persistent when it comes to things. So we found a phone number, we rang up and we went into Gosford Water Polo. And I have to tell this story because oh, it's a wonder I even stuck with it. We went into training at Gosford Pool. And I um, was very unaware of just how well Sharon could swim. 
even though I'd seen her swim a little bit. <laughs> and so we get in the pool. I, you know, I think I'm 30-something at the time, I don't know, 33. And we start swimming across Gosford Pool, just doing a bit of freestyle. Now, I thought I could swim a little bit, but let me tell you, I should have just gone home then because I had her one side of me and I had another guy to the other side of me. And after we'd done the warm-up and I looked around, I thought, if this is what water polo is all about, I'm out of here. <laughs> so I had... Sharon on one side of me, who was one of Australia's best butterfly and freestylers, and on the left-hand side I had Paul Rowe, who's an Olympian, come Commonwealth Games medalist. But if you've got to swim at this level, then this water polo sport's not for me. So anyway, not my style to not go back again. I went back again and I played for another couple of seasons, but played very badly and, um, look, made some great friends and those friendships of, you know, lifelong friendships and I suppose then an association with the sport that, um, you know, it's been a lot of fun for us over the years as well. So, and still president. Yeah, so if anyone out there would like to be president of Gosford Water Polo. <laughs> <laughs> so how's it been? How does it feel being the inaugural guest? Look, well, I really didn't know what I was signing up for here. <laughs> so I guess it's like having a chat with Steve Allen, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I gave you a standing O at the start of the interview, giving you a standing O at the finish. Uh, thanks for joining me. No problem. Tracy Stimson also known professionally as Tracy Worrell. Whether it's her career as a midwife or nurse, the president of a sporting club which includes countless hours volunteering at all levels, junior and senior, a mother to four outstanding children, and a dear friend to everyone, I believe she's certainly worth her weight in gold. Next up, the man who ran 10 marathons in 10 days and has pretty much devoted his entire life to charity work as well as running an award-winning drug and alcohol rehab centre. Hope you enjoyed our first episode, and if you know someone who's worth their weight in gold, I'd love to hear about it. Just send me a direct message on socials or via our brand-new website. Thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll catch you next time on Worth Their Weight in Gold.